tens of thousands of officials, ministers, observers, and world leaders are converging on the Danish capital Copenhagen for one of the most significant climate change meetings this decade. Over the next fortnight, conference delegates will attempt to find a successor to the Kyoto Protocol. Chris Bramwell looks at the road to Copenhagen and what the talks might mean for New Zealand. At Copenhagen, governments must give their clear answer on what they will do to avoid dangerous climate change and how they will do it. The executive secretary of the UN Climate Change Secretariat, Ivo de Boer, spells out the basic mandate for Copenhagen. The forum is the 15th meeting of the Conference of Parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, which was signed in Rio de Janeiro in 1992. That convention placed the heaviest burden for fighting human-induced climate change on industrialised nations and called them Annex One countries. The agreement was important because it started the momentum towards an internationally legally binding treaty to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, which culminated in a meeting in the Japanese city of Kyoto 12 years ago. Simon Upton was New Zealand's climate change minister at that conference. He says the Kyoto Protocol was important because it represented an attempt by the world's countries to make formal progress. The alternative would be not to have reached such an agreement. And whether or not you think Kyoto has been a success, the very fact that it was negotiated and has been subsequently ratified has created, if you like, a rod for everyone to be beaten over the head with. It's created a reason for revisiting the issue. It's created a reason for ongoing momentum. So if you're of the view, as I am, that this is a serious problem that needs to be dealt with, having a ratified a negotiated stake in the ground was pretty important. People seem to think that on the night of Kyoto that everyone emerged bleary-eyed with a ratifiable treaty, but that was not actually the case, was it? No, it, it wasn't. It took some years before a treaty could be actually ratified. It wasn't until 2001, it was after I'd actually left Parliament, but it wasn't until then that you had a treaty that could be ratified. So no, it was the bones of an agreement. And you can argue about whether it was the right agreement, whether it was the right thing to achieve. And saying that it was important, I'm simply saying that by putting a stake in the ground, regardless of its quality, it ensured people would have to meet again. The Green MP, Jeanette Fitzsimons, who was at Kyoto, agrees. The only success you can ascribe to Kyoto is that it provides a framework where countries get around the table together frequently and keep talking. And also um, a process which has led to a lot of information becoming available, a lot of monitoring and measurement happening, and ordinary citizens therefore having the means to learn the importance of climate change and what they can personally do. In terms of what nations have achieved reducing their emissions, no. Kyoto has achieved very little at this stage. The five-year Kyoto Protocol commitment period runs until the end of 2012. Then countries that ratified the treaty must ensure their greenhouse gas emissions meet the target they signed up to. If they don't, they could be declared non-compliant by the United Nations and charged an extra 30% of the difference between their emissions and the assigned amount. Whether this will apply to New Zealand is still uncertain. The world's biggest emitter at the time Kyoto was signed, the United States, refused to ratify the treaty, partially over the issue of compliance. Simon Upton. Because uh, their Congress indicated that it, it wouldn't sign up, even if the administration did, and 
compliance, handing compliance to an international body is one of the things which has proved just too difficult for America's particular constitutional arrangements. But I suspect that if pressure was brought to bear on any country which wasn't in compliance, there would be all sorts of questions raised domestically about why did you ever sign up to this and and we didn't know and so on and so forth. I mean, this is the side to any international agreement which is the hardest of all to negotiate. We don't have really much of a a global diplomatic tradition of treaties with enforcement procedures against sovereign countries. I mean, they they do exist. I'm not an expert in the area, but this is pretty new territory. To do it on something as breathtaking as greenhouse gas emissions, uh, where there are so many uncertainties, I think this is really what's pushing people the hardest. And that's why if the world signs up to something in some respects more modest than Kyoto in terms of the the legal ramifications, it'll be because, in part, because the, the compliance side is just too tough. The Climate Change Negotiations Minister Tim Grosser says there's no doubt that success at the Copenhagen meeting rides on the US and China, which discharge more than 40% of total emissions. Any deal, common sense tells you, has to be brokered on the back of what the US and China can live with. Now, the United States is approaching this in a pretty realistic way. They're not expecting the same level of contribution from China. They fully understand that that is not on the table. But the United States will not be able to make um, a solid, strong commitment without strong actions from China. Everybody understands that, or at least I hope they understand that. China seems quite willing and quite engaged, though. That is also my view. There are others that have a different and more negative view of China, but I personally share that view that you've expressed, and I share it having spent you know, a lot of time in negotiating rooms, listening formally to their statements, and informally, usually through interpreters with their minister, but with the officials directly without an interpreter. I believe China is playing a constructive role in most international processes, frankly, whether it's trade, which is my other responsibility, or climate change. Because the US didn't ratify Kyoto, it only has observer status at some of the meetings, and it comes to Copenhagen with its domestic emissions trading legislation stuck in the Senate. The director of Victoria University's Institute of Policy Studies, Jonathan Boston, says that leaves it in an awkward position. It's not going to be provide the kind of leadership that the developing world, and indeed the developed world, wants, and that's going to constrain the willingness of other countries to make the kinds of concessions that would be needed to, to secure a, a very good agreement. It means that it, the likelihood is that we, we certainly won't get a, a full treaty or protocol. What we're most likely to get, it seems now, is, is some sort of high-level political agreement on some of the key elements of what will eventually become a new protocol sometime in the next year to 18 months. That new protocol may well embrace virtually all the elements of Kyoto. Indeed, it's possible Kyoto will remain and then there will be a new protocol and eventually, in 10 years' time or something, Kyoto will cease to be effective. It will be subsumed within another protocol. A key reason why the US wouldn't ratify the Kyoto Protocol was because developing countries weren't included. Jonathan Boston says the distinction between developed and developing countries was fundamental when the UNFCCC was signed in Rio in 1992, but that distinction is becoming less and less relevant. If you went back 20 years, there was a clear distinction between the industrialised countries, the developed countries, the relatively rich countries of North America and Europe and so on, and the relatively poor countries of Asia and Africa, Latin America, 
what's happened over the last couple of decades is that many of the developing countries have grown rapidly, such that their GDP per capita is now higher than many of the countries of the so-called developed world. And moreover, some of the countries of the developed world have, have slipped backwards, not least the countries of the former Soviet bloc. So we now have a much more variegated situation internationally where you cannot draw a hard and fast line between developed and developing. Moreover, many of the uh, emerging economies like China and India have invested heavily in fossil fuel-based energy systems, particularly coal-based power stations, and uh, they are thus now increasingly large emitters. Indeed, China has surpassed the United States as the largest single emitter, and its emissions per capita are rising rapidly, now at least at the global average rate in climbing. So we have to bring the developing world, particularly the more advanced part of the developing world, within a new kind of agreement which imposes legally binding obligations on all major emitters to reduce the rate of increase in their emissions, uh, if not reduce their emissions. That distinction was very clear within the Kyoto Protocol as Annex 1 and non-Annex 1. Mm. Going into Copenhagen, there has to be some kind of distinction, does there not, between those that are currently in an agreement and those that are not. So mm. how are we going to um, make Well, that? the global community is deeply divided about this. I mean, the first point to note is that at Bali, the distinction that was made in the Bali Action Plan was between developing and developed, which was, in fact, a shift from Annex 1 and, and non-Annex 1. Internationally, uh, the bulk of the developing world are still very keen to maintain the so-called firewall, as it's called, between the developed and the developing world. And that means, from their point of view, having different types of obligations on advanced industrialised democracies like New Zealand and the United States from those obligations that apply to the rest of the world. The Climate Change Minister, Nick Smith, will be leading the New Zealand delegation to Copenhagen. He says unless developing countries are brought on board, the global community is going to struggle to find a solution to the problem of increasing emissions. Dr Smith says it's projected that over the next 30 years, 97% of the increase in emissions will come from developing countries. We have to be part, as a responsible nation, of building a bridge between the richer developed countries and the developing countries, in which, in short, the developed countries have got to accept responsibility that the bulk of the historic increase in emissions have been caused by them. But equally, we need to get the developing countries to understand, yes, but the bulk of the future increase in emissions is with them. At the recent Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting, the British Prime Minister Gordon Brown proposed a $14 billion a year fund be established to help countries most vulnerable to human-induced climate change. The New Zealand government estimates it would have to contribute between $25 and $30 million annually to the fund. The executive director of Oxfam New Zealand, Barry Coates, says the people most at risk from human-induced global warming are often from developing and poorer countries. He says that realisation is leading those nations to take a more resolute line at climate talks. The kind of tectonic plates of, of international negotiations have shifted. And, you know, we've already seen it in the World Trade Organisation where now developing countries 
aren't prepared just to kind of roll over and accept what the United States and the EU come up with in terms of negotiations. So in these negotiations, the voices of, of the bigger developing countries, the developing countries as a blocker, have been very powerful together with groups like the African countries, the least developed countries, and really strongly, the Pacific Island countries together with other small island states. Greenpeace's political advisor Jeff Key was at the recent climate talks in Barcelona where African nations brought the proceedings to a grinding halt. Speaking from Europe, he told me the group walked out of the meeting in protest at the lack of action by developed nations. Saying that they're already being impacted by climate change and that the survival of their people was not negotiable. And I thought that was really interesting. That was a sign that Africa would really want to see, ironically though they walked out, it's a sign that they actually want to see some real progress and that they wanted to signal it by showing that they were serious. Former climate change minister Simon Upton agrees that developing countries appear far more engaged and more substantive in their analysis this time around. They may well not be prepared uh, to take on binding commitments a la the developed world, but there's much more of a sense of action and engagement. And equally, from the developed country side, I think there is much more of an understanding that serious money will have to be put on the table one way or another if developing countries are to be asked to engage more swiftly than they otherwise would from a developmental point of view. So I think it's altogether deeper and for that reason a more constructive environment than we had. It it looks terribly difficult from the outside. Uh, I'm not personally close to the negotiations, but while it looks terribly difficult with a lot of countries standing on principle on either side of this debate, I get the feeling that much more serious engagement is taking place than was taking place 12 years ago. In saying that, do you think that we are perhaps closer to an agreement now than at the same point before Kyoto? I don't think we're necessarily any closer to an agreement, but I think we are closer to a genuine domestic engagement by all the countries that matter that they're going to have to do something. That may sound terribly modest when I put it that way, but I honestly think that that is some real progress. It is quite clear to most observers that countries like China are really taking this very seriously. They are building it into a lot of their domestic policies. They are aware of where their emissions trajectories are heading. They know that just for domestic reasons, uh, they need to be part of a solution. And I, I think that awareness is much higher than it was. It won't necessarily make an international agreement any easier to find, but I think there is a deeper engagement. And so there should be. Heavens, we've had 12 years of further analysis on this, so it would be deeply worrying if it wasn't that way. But I think there are, there are two issues here. One is whether there is a piece of paper which carries binding obligations you know, with international law ramifications. That's one set of issues. And the other issue is whether there is genuine domestic engagement and also multilateral engagement outside legal text, countries working together, countries talking really seriously about cooperative arrangements. Uh, and, and I think it's in that latter sphere that you're starting to see some interesting things happen. Is that really where we've got to, though, just cooperation? Because we saw the Framework Convention on Climate Change signed many moons ago where countries agreed to reduce their emissions by 2000 down to 1990 levels. Then we got to Kyoto. Everyone made these projections about what they may or may not do. New Zealand is 22% above what it agreed to do. And 
here we are negotiating a third agreement, mm. perhaps with no end in sight of our emissions going up. Well, I think it demonstrates just how difficult all countries, without exception, have found this issue on the domestic front. I mean, you take New Zealand's case, you say it's 20% over. That is quite correct. To be frank, we knew we were likely to be over in a gross sense. We were also offering our forest sinks as a bridge into the future. Now, whether you think we've used our time wisely, that's another matter. But the reality is that New Zealand always said, well, it would meet that commitment by making full use of all the mechanisms available to it under the treaty. And those include the so-called flexibility instruments, and they included using our forest sinks. And every country has taken that approach. Every country is trying to find the least painful way forward. That was, for us, the least painful way forward. I have to say, countries said to me repeatedly, look, this is just a way of doing nothing. You're just going to grow forest everywhere, and then suddenly you'll have a problem, won't you? And my answer was, yes, we will. If if we do absolutely nothing and we just cover the country with forests, uh, we'll eventually run out of sinks. That's why uh, we're well aware that we will have to do more than that. It's taken a very long time to getting beyond that point, but New Zealand's not unique. Every single player in this debate is trying to put this in terms which will make the adjustment path easiest for them. New Zealand is not unique in that. Nick Smith says while New Zealand did well at Kyoto in getting its forest sinks recognised, there are three further rule changes that will be sought at Copenhagen. The first change in rules that we are seeking is the carbon to atmosphere rules. That is where at the moment it's assumed that all of the CO2 stored within our trees is released at the time of harvest. Logically that's a nonsense. Obviously a large amount of the carbon remains stored in the the timber, the the fibreboard and the other products that flow out of our forest industry. Kyoto decided it was just too hard to try and audit what took place beyond tree harvest. We've done a lot of work around gaining credible systems for that. It would be a huge step forward for New Zealand's forest industry if we were able to achieve that. The second change that we're wanting is around what's called forestry offset. At the moment, if an older pre-1990 forest is harvested, they must plant that specific area of land. And yet, from the atmosphere's point of view, it makes no difference where the trees are planted, whether they're planted on that 100 hectares or some other 100 hectares that can grow an equivalent amount of trees. It would be our desire uh, to achieve that goal as well. There's a third rule in respect of the complexity of carbon accounting with trees, we were wanting to ensure that a post-1990 forest owner is not incurring liabilities to a greater degree than what they've received credits. That is an existing rule, uh, but it expires at the end of Kyoto, and so we are trying to get a rollover of that rule to try and make it work well. Senior officials have indicated that a change to the carbon-to-atmosphere rules looks positive, but offsets less so. The spokesperson for the Forest Owners Association, David Rhodes, says there's some international resistance to forestry offsets. Probably from a developing country perspective, they're very wary of developed countries doing anything to adjust the rules because they're suspicious that it's just being countries trying to find a way out of meeting their obligations. So you're always up against that resistance. We do also have a nervousness from some of the environmental groups because I don't think they're necessarily opposed to what we're proposing, but their fear is that it would flow over into the 
native forests around the world so that you would get native forests being replaced by plantation forests. So that is carbon neutral, but it misses the point that you know, you've got some biodiversity concerns there. So we're well aware of that, and we do concede those, and, and they need to be addressed. On top of that, I would say we're also up against it in terms of some of the other developed countries who don't have the land use change dynamic that we do in New Zealand. So they've got a land use mosaic out there, which is very set, uh, and really it's a case that they can't see why the rules need to be changed for 4 million people sitting in a small country down the bottom of the Pacific. The President of Federated Farmers, Don Nicholson, says he would like the greenhouse gases, methane and nitrous oxide taken out of any agreement that might be made at the talks. But he concedes that's unlikely. There's some realism starting to develop that the world needs food. We've got a growing population. New Zealand is well placed to produce more food, actually, and that hindering the very sustenance of of the planet's people is not a smart way to go. And I think that sentiment is starting to come through. Don Nicholson says farmers' futures are at stake. We have got a very unsure future with regard to um, meeting obligations that the governments of the world have decided should be imposed on, on us and what our government in New Zealand has decided should be imposed on us. We don't actually know what's going to roll out of that, but we would hope that our negotiators would be considering the fact that currently New Zealand farming has no real tools to mitigate our emissions profile, uh, out of meth- especially methane, and so we're, we're really flying blind. The Climate Change Negotiations Minister Tim Grosser says New Zealand's credentials at Copenhagen rest on three points. We have a, an emissions trading scheme in place that is the world's uh, first and only all gases, all sectors emissions trading scheme. The second is a very respectable conditional offer to cut our emissions by between minus 10 and minus 20% on 1990 levels. And the third is a very serious research proposal on agriculture and greenhouse gases. And everybody should understand one thing. There is not one chance in a thousand of the world getting on top of this problem without research breakthroughs in a number of areas. Probably the most important of all is carbon capture storage in coal production. But agriculture is an issue of vital importance to the world, particularly since we're now going to be bringing developing countries into this game in a more considered way. It's likely leaders at Copenhagen will agree to a mandate that will limit carbon dioxide concentrations in the atmosphere to 450 parts per million, which it's hoped will limit any global temperature rise to 2 degrees. Andy Raysinger is a climate research fellow at the New Zealand Climate Change Research Institute. He says the key question is how much individual countries will do to cut emissions. They have different per capita emissions, they have different per capita incomes, they have different other development status like child mortality is much higher in most developing countries. So a lot of different studies apply different ways of allocating responsibility for who should reduce emissions most and who should reduce emissions least. They all converge on the fact that developed countries have to reduce emissions a lot more by about 25 to 40 percent below 1990 levels by 2020, whereas developing countries only have to reduce their collective growth in emissions by about 15 to 30% to where they would have been otherwise. In the longer term, developing countries also have to make more stringent emission reductions. But that's obviously then a question of political negotiations. You can have one country reducing its emissions more and another country less. You still have the same global outcome. So there's, there's a science, a robust science behind global emissions targets. When it comes to individual country emissions targets, it becomes more an interplay between science and policy and politics. 
Tim Grosser says it's likely that what will emerge from Copenhagen is a politically binding treaty. In real terms, that means it would be morally binding until such time as a legally binding text can be agreed upon. And that may not be until the Conference of Parties meets again in Mexico at the end of next year. Tim Grosser argues that getting a ratifiable treaty out of Copenhagen was never going to happen. And I've been astonished, frankly, at the time it's taken for others to reach the same conclusion. So until the Prime Minister of Denmark, who is the president of the conference or the host of the conference, came to APEC dramatically and unexpectedly, I thought we were heading towards a train wreck, frankly. But now that he's actually said that there is no possibility of getting everything agreed all at once and all together, then frankly I'm rather more optimistic. But an idea that has been gaining traction, potentially as a plan B, is one put up by Australia's climate change minister Penny Wong. The idea, called National Schedules, would require countries to register their commitments to reduce emissions without binding international targets. Those commitments would be domestically binding and allow for a variety of targets, not just a single one, as under Kyoto. The climate change minister, Nick Smith, says while the government's first preference is for a new international treaty, he sees merit in Australia's plan. As a second best, as a plan B, it is better for us to secure that than to walk away from Copenhagen, uh, having not been able to secure anything to move on uh, beyond 2012. So would New Zealand be standing alongside Australia in promoting national schedules? It has been the policy of this government to work more closely uh, with the Australian government. If every country goes off in divergent directions, it's impossible for us to make progress. The proposal that's been put forward by Senator Wong makes uh, reasonable sense, and yes, we are going to be working closely with the Australians on that. Labor's climate change spokesperson Charles Chevelle says national schedules is an approach worth exploring, but he says that and an internationally binding treaty needn't be a substitute for one another. You might get to a more comprehensive global agreement with national schedules as a, as a step along the way, but I wouldn't like anybody to lose sight of, of the desirability for the comprehensive global agreement. It's understood the schedules idea forms the basis for a draft proposal drawn up by the Danish government, which is eager to see the conference succeed on its turf. However, it's been reported that the idea has not gone down well with the leaders of Brazil, South Africa, India and China, who have now drawn up their own draft proposal. Copenhagen will not only be echoing with the sound of thousands of briefcases opening and closing, there's also expected to be tens of thousands of activists converging on the city. Many of them will be calling for stronger action on greenhouse gas emissions. But ClimateGate, the controversy surrounding the leaked emails from scientists in the UK, has also renewed calls from global warming sceptics for a review of the climate change data and a postponement of Copenhagen. This bill is about implementing for New Zealand a workable and affordable scheme that will provide an incentive to reduce emissions and to encourage afforestation. It strikes Here, the Copenhagen talks have already had an impact, even before they start. 
In the past fortnight, the New Zealand government has pushed through its changes to the emissions trading scheme, so it was completed ahead of the climate change conference. When the energy and transport sectors enter the amended scheme in July next year, New Zealanders will finally face part of the cost of greenhouse gas emissions. It's expected petrol will go up about three cents a litre and electricity bills by about five percent. However, if New Zealand's negotiating team can't make progress on some of the forestry changes, it's likely that future climate change bills will be higher, and some of those bills will undoubtedly be passed on to the taxpayer. That programme was written and presented by Chris Bramwell. It was produced by Sue Ingram.